Welcome to the Traverse Podcast with me, Debbie Hannon. So, theatre has changed. COVID-19 has sent us into a reflective pause. It has inspired art, activism, the examination of power, and demanded a new normal as we all invent what comes next. This series is inspired by Arundhati Roy's statement, the pandemic is a portal. And these podcasts are a selection of interviews with the people who are shaping that future, inside and outside of theatre. They are intimate, candid conversations about lived experience where people speak their truth to power. It's important to say here that our interviewees speak freely on a range of topics. Whilst you might not share all their points of view, they are here to be heard. Each one is a provocation which looks to examine theatre making and storytelling, how we do it and its place in our new world. Today's conversation is the last one of 2020 and it's a special one. Today I'm talking to poet and theatre maker Harry Josephine Giles. Harry Josephine works across many mediums and has most recently made a happening for the Traverse. They are a radical thinker, an advocate and an activist who interrogates the power structure in theatre and, through their poetry and theatre work, dreams up better ways. Alongside occasionally getting a police visit. A quick content warning, Harry Josephine discusses the toll of the pandemic on marginalised people, specifically on people's mental health, and in particular their frustration with the Westminster government, just in case you're not in the headspace for that today. Enjoy. Hello, Harry Josephine. How are you today? Hi, um, I'm doing okay, or, you know, as as okay as, as people are in these times. Where are you zooming into us from? I'm down in Leith. In Leith? You're, oh yeah, you're a self-proclaimed Leither. Yeah, I mean, I, I adopted. I've adopted Leith. I've been in the same square mile for 10 years. I, I feel an like official Leither. I think it is. I think it is. I definitely prefer to be here. So. I am a massive fan of Leith too. I would love you just to kick off by telling our listeners what you do, um, maybe with an example of your work. So I'm a writer and performer. I work kind of across poetry and theatre and games. I do a lot of things that, that use two or even three of those disciplines at once. Last year, I had a multimedia poetry theatre show in the Made in Scotland showcase at the Edinburgh Fringe called Drone, which was about drones. And that involved using some video and some music alongside the poetry to kind of create this whole theatrical experience. I had a book out uh, the year before that called The Games from Outspoken Press. Those were some of the big things that I've done lately. You've recently done a happening for the Traverse. A bit of context, the happenings are a series of video pieces about current cultural topics and particularly the link, I think, through it all is about who has the access and the right to culture. I would love you just to speak about what that's about and how it was to make it. Sure. Well, we we got a bit overexcited and we actually recorded two. (laughs) (laughs) You're the only artist that's done that. We just got a bit overexcited. (laughs) So I've got two quite different pieces that we're working on. The first is called, I think we settled on the title, Why I'm Giving Up Political Art, which is an essay, it's an edited version of an essay that I actually wrote for a zine that's coming out in the next month or so that's, that's come from a project from the Live Art Development Agency looking at art and worker organisation. So that's that's what the essay was written for. And then I edited it and adapted it for this Traverse context. But what it's about is I have been kind of making 
explicitly politically oriented theatre or was making explicitly politically oriented performance and theatre for like a decade. And by political, I mean like work where agitation was kind of part of the artistic point where where it wasn't just kind of about political subjects, but it was intended to kind of organise in itself. And I'm just kind of knackered and frustrated with myself and a little bit, I don't know, burned out on my own intentions or suspicious of my own intentions. And so in my own work, I've turned a lot more towards personal work, things that explore my reality. And from that turn, I kind of had a critique of some of the intentions that I think lie behind self-avowedly political art, self-avowedly community art that I wanted to get out. So so in the way that I usually do, I kind of wrote it as a bit of a provocation and a manifesto that that's mostly directed at myself, but maybe takes in a few other targets at the same time. That's real self-interrogation. I think I think that's just what artists do. I mean, we're constantly we're we're it's awful. We're so self-obsessed. <laughs> I mean, I hope that we are, but but I think all that art is, is like constantly examining the thing that you're doing and wanting to push it further and wanting to push it to new places. And, and you can't stop doing that or you get bored with yourself. You mentioned agitation there as part of your work and your practice. For someone who maybe doesn't know the lexicon around that, what would agitation look like in a piece of work? Well, maybe I should just give an example. So, for example, a few years ago, I did a project, performance project thing called... I want to blow up Palace of Holyrood House, <laughs> uh, which was, which was it's direct. It was personal, <laughs> but right. I live in Leith. I spend a lot of time cycling to the centre of town, and it meant I spent a lot of time cycling past the Queen's residence. And I just started having these fantasies about blowing it up, and I got really interested in like, how would you actually do that, and would it be worth it? And then I realised, in the process of researching that, that. Counterterrorism legislation means that it's well, it's unlawful or it's illegal rather. It's illegal to promote terrorism and it's illegal to speak in such a way that might promote terrorism. And it's also illegal to have knowledge that could be used for committing acts of terrorism unless you have a justification that is not an act of terrorism for having it. So for example, it's illegal to know how to make a bomb unless you can prove that you have a non-terrorist reason for knowing how to make a bomb. It's literally illegal to know how to make a bomb. So I got really interested in this as a freedom of speech issue and as a counter-terrorism issue. And I thought, well, how can I research how to build a scale model of the Palace of Holyrood House (laughs) and blow that up (laughs) and call it art... I'd use the fact that it was an art as a justification for having the knowledge and use all of this to kind of have a conversation about anti-terrorism legislation, freedom of speech, what is going on around that, how it gets used in different circumstances. Also just to explore like the political desire, where to put my rage at the time. And we did end up like building a, a model of the palace and destroying it, at the Spill National Platform, which was quite fun. <laughs> So, so that's that. That for me was an agitationary political project, but it was also kind of the last one that I did because the the basic fact is that because it was art, I was allowed to do it, 
And I did get a visit from the police, by the way. No. Yeah, of course. So they phoned me up and they had to check whether I was a terrorist or not. Because I was doing this public work saying, I want to blow up the Palace of Hollywood House. I'm not going to do it. It's just for art. So they had to visit to check that I wasn't a terrorist. So, you know, they came to my flat and chatted to me for an hour and a half. But because it was art, and also because I'm white, because I can speak in a middle class way, like I could get away with it. So the fact that it was art allowed me to do it, but also the fact that it was art meant that it wasn't dangerous anymore. Like it was it was being art that made it not dangerous in the eyes of the police. And if the police think that I'm not dangerous, then it's definitely not dangerous. Do you know what I mean? So that's that's where I started getting really frustrated about the capacity of art to actually do anything. And I thought, why am I making all this art instead of, I don't know, just going to an organising meeting? That might be a bit more effective. Within that, you're rubbing up against boundaries, barriers, even the very structure of making artwork, which leads me very neatly on tasking about the Workers' Theatre, which is a cooperatively owned and managed theatre in Scotland. I think it's absolutely brilliant. The manifesto is particularly incredible. My favourite points on it are, number two, the Workers' Theatre will put on shows that entertain and radicalise. And number four, all labour is equal and should be equally well paid. I really advise anyone to uh, look up this manifesto and read every other point because they are all brilliant. I'd love to hear a bit more about how you set that up and all also about the intentions behind it and how it presents a new way of making. The thing about the workers at the moment is that we're quite dormant, as so many projects are dormant right now, that we exist to make live performance and we can't do it right now. We don't have any regular funding in, so we have nothing to kind of keep us reliably making stuff. And we're made up of a group of precarious workers and we're all knackered, like... Like we can't, you know, I am somebody that always has a lot of different projects on the go, but I have had to, I've, I've, I've literally cut my working hours in half over the course of 2020 because of coronavirus, because of the mental health aspects of it, because also because I'm spending a lot of time like looking after my friends and looking after myself. And that's like, that's a big job. So I, you know, I would have worked a standard like 40, 50 hour week. And now I'm working, you know, a 20, 24 hour week because I can't manage more than that. Other people in the workers have different versions of the same story. So we're quite dormant right now because of the pandemic. And I hope and believe we'll come back at some point, but who knows in what form. So a bit of the history. We started something like five years ago when out of conversations between me and a few of my pals around theatre in Scotland and addressing two lacks. And one was for a regular small venue that was accessible to early and mid-career artists, like a 100, 150-seater venue that was possible for early and mid-career artists to get into to put on unusual work. And that lack was especially coming from the loss of the arches. Yeah. Along with other community and independent spaces, I used to be a building manager at the Old Forest Cafe at Three Bristol Place. Oh. <laughs> I know. And like, that was a space that created stuff. You know, the Big Red Door had gone, various other venues had gone. So it was out of that, like, loss of venues. Well, we want to make a venue. And we were all people that had uh, a radical politics, uh, a worker-oriented politics. So we wanted to run it as a worker cooperative, which is an organisation that's owned and managed by its workers, democratically. And we wanted to have, like, a political intent from the outset. So that's been our kind of reason to be, is to try and make a new venue happen. And then on the way to doing that, we've been running various producing projects, both to kind of 
cement our organization as a collective and to start doing the kind of things that we wanted to exist in the world, that we thought had to exist in the world. So one of the big projects that we've done, that we did a few years ago, uh, was called Megaphone, which was initiated by one of our members, Sarah Sharoui, to... We, we crowdfunded a residency for theatre artists of colour in Scotland. We ran a Kickstarter to do it and we crowdfunded £12,500, which supported four residencies for artists of colour. And that ran June 9th to 11th in 2016. So it was this like summer weekender where we put on this new work. And that included work from people like Hannah Lavery, who's now gone on to do quite a bit of work with the National Theatre of Scotland, really. Mara Mingus, a storyteller who's done loads of storytelling work and and a number of other artists as well. So it had that kind of supporting things from the grassroots kind of role. And we were very proud of doing that work and we've done some similar work since. So we've tried to like intervene with interesting producing projects since then with like weekenders, little festivals. Yeah, things like that. So so that's the idea and what's happening, but who knows what's coming in the future world. In that time you did get to be together, I think often people hear about cooperative working and different structures and they go, yeah, but where are the problems? Like, what do you do when you need to make a decision? So I'm going to go the opposite way and go, what was a bit of like democratic euphoria? Like, what was, was there, what was there a moment there where it was like, this is working and here's some of the brilliance of it? Yeah, it's a really interesting question because I am more used to answering the other one because people are always like, yeah, but it's harder to work cooperatively. And I'm like, no, it's not. It's actually harder to work in a hierarchical manner. I think it's more efficient to work cooperatively. Personally, as someone who's been involved in like two worker co-op projects, what's a moment where where things... Do you know, making the manifesto was sheer delight because the whole team worked on it together iterated it together and we're constantly pushing each other into more interesting and exciting ideas and it was a collectively written text it wasn't that one person wrote it and the rest of us signed it off we had I think four or five people at the time that that worked on that and made that together and then we announced it to the world and people got excited about it which is nice and that process of collective authorship is is a beautiful thing when it happens. I think one of the things to say about that is I've just sort of interchanged collective and cooperative and they're quite different things. And something I try and talk about a lot is that a workers' cooperative is a formal structure to support collective working and it requires an investment of time and energy and commitment. I think one of the things that sometimes breaks collectives is everyone's so precarious that we all end up doing different things and you can't hold everyone together because the boundaries of the thing are so porous. People come in, then they have to go off to a different thing as a new opportunity presents itself and you can't keep the thing going. One of the side effects of that is that often you have a collective where like one or two people are really running the show and always trying to get everybody else to be as involved and they're not. And that's that's natural. That's a thing that happens. The thing about a workers' cooperative is that you're all official owners of the organisation and a democratic decision-making process has to be built into the constitution of the organisation. It's a legal and financial structure. And by dint of being a legal and financial structure, it requires a certain level of commitment and it provides that kind of organisational support for ongoing collective working. That's something that I, I care about and advocate for. I'm just picking up on what you mentioned about the pandemic and the strain of it. And I guess part of this big existential moment in the arts has been examining practices in terms of well-being and care. Maybe not necessarily just in the workers' theatre, maybe throughout your whole practice. It sounds like you've had to lean in towards care more. But I was wondering, has that shown up more? Have you changed your thoughts on it? Where would you like to see more of it? Wow. 
yeah. It's just big stuff. It's big and intense stuff. Like, I think the main manifestation of that in my life at the moment is in various different projects, regularly having to say, do you know what? We can't do this. Let's mothball this. Let's not do this right now. Let's make space for each other. And lots of people having to email saying, I can't handle this right now. I literally can't do this. Can we do this in a few months? Can we do this next year? Can I cancel this project? But that's necessary because we're all under such strain. And so in my workplace, the kind of care that I think is mattering to me the most is people checking in on each other's capacity, being willing to say, I can't do this, and also being willing to say, let's not do this right now. Let's actually make space for each other stepping back from the endless churn, stepping back from constantly working in crisis because that's going to break us and trying to build time for each other. But that's something, of course, that takes financial resources because we all also have to earn enough money to live and that's dependent on financial resources. So this week, the week that we're recording, I haven't read the full interview. I've just seen the headline, but obviously Grayson Perry has been quoted saying the situation's going to cut off the dead wood. And I'm sure it's more complicated and subtle than that. And I'll read the full story. No, I won't. I won't even bother reading the full story. The headline is actually true. That is what's going to happen. We are going to cut off the people who are suffering, the people who are dying, the people who can't make work right now. That is what's going to be lost. But what we're left with is not a healthy tree. <laughs> what we're actually losing is all of the most interesting stuff because it's always people who are working under pressurised and precarious conditions who have something important to say. So, I don't know, we're losing what's truly valuable and what will stand is what's well supported and what's strong and what can continue because it already has the financial resources to continue. Do you see any way that we can intervene in that outcome? <laughs> help me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I need help too. I, I'm thinking yeah. so much has changed so quickly and I, I am in quite a negative moment at the moment. Like I'm feeling very hostile. <laughs> I'm feeling very angry and despairing at the moment. I'm remembering lockdown one, right? I'm remembering the beginning of the first lockdown and the explosion of mutual aid, which meant something and was genuine and was a real outpouring of people looking after each other, both in our communities and in our workplaces and in our personal lives. And honestly, I felt that ebbing away. And England has just announced lockdown two. Lots of Scotland was in a similar position already and, and everyone is so tired. And so beaten down both by the virus itself and by the political response to the virus, that we're not seeing the same push. We're not seeing the same community-based goodwill and possibility as we did the first time round. And that's really dangerous, I think. That's a, it's a, it's a really risky. So similarly, from an arts funding perspective, at the beginning of the pandemic in Scotland, Every organisation that had funding had its funding conditions removed so it could do whatever it needed to do with that money. And the most important thing it could do with that money was to honour all of the existing contracts, whether or not the work was going to happen, uh, which is what happened in the organisations that I was part of. And I noticed which organisations did that. And I will always remember who did not honour the contracts. The other thing that happened is that non-conditional money was made available to independent artists, that many artists for the first time in their lives got the experience of 
getting money without having to prove that they deserved it. And I think that would have made both wonderful work and better thriving lives. Like, yes, it was money under impossible conditions. Yes, it was massively oversubscribed. Yes, if you were quick and on the internet, you were more likely to get the money and all of those are massive problems. But it offered a model. It was only, you know, a couple of thousand pounds max, but it changed people's lives and it kept people going. But the second time around, the crisis funds that are now available are really much more gatekeeping and require far more justification, far more proof, a whole layers of administration. And that means, again, that the people who are used to funding applications are going to get the money. And it's it's all conditional. It's all pressurised. And that, I think, is a very different type of thing. So, so I suppose the answer that I have is I'd like to return to some of early lockdown. We can't ever return. I want to remember what happened at the beginning of the pandemic and find ways of bringing that intention back and some of the radical possibility of that back. Because at the moment, I feel like we're just holding back a, a, a wall of horror. Yeah, that's a massive like personal reminder to me about that level of generosity as someone sitting in England. Yeah, and I think generosity is one word for that. And another is solidarity. Yes. That it's, it's not just about like people with stuff giving it to people without stuff. It's everyone who has needs working to fulfil each other's needs. And it's that connection of solidarity that I think is important. On that, you curated Not Going Back to Normal, which was the Collective Disabled Artists Manifesto. And you can access it online. It's a gallery of 49 artworks and texts responding to a call out for ideas for a radically accessible arts world. And some of the bits of text in that are really striking. I'd love to hear about what the response was to that when you put the call out. What happened? So not going back to normal was a a commission from a a consortium of uh, visual and gallery arts organisations in Scotland to provide a provocation from disability arts and Myself with Sasha Sabin Callahan, who's the other cool curator of it, we decided not to just make a work by ourselves, but to try and collectivize it as much as possible. So we have like, I think, 49 different artworks in the gallery, which is also a manifesto. The response has been pretty exciting. People kept asking, what do you want this project to do? How do you want institutions to change? And we kept saying, well, we're not actually that interested in what the institutions say they're going to do. We're more interested in organising ourselves and each other. We're more interested in bringing disabled artists together and showing what happens when we organise amongst ourselves and showing the possibility of that collectivity and that collective demand and supporting that kind of work. And that's the response that really excites me. We did get these like 40, 50 different artists together to individually offer things and to speak with this kind of cacophonous collective voice. But we're not the only people doing that. The campaign, We Shall Not Be Removed, which has that hashtag as well, We Shall Not Be Removed, has been organising disabled artists and disabled arts professionals for the whole of the pandemic and, and really drawing attention to how pandemic conditions particularly affect us. But also the other end of that is what pandemic conditions make clear, which is most fundamentally that a whole bunch of the access demands that a bunch of people have been asking for for decades and we're told are not possible are now suddenly possible, such as online meetings, which like, but even yesterday I was in a, I was in a session yesterday where 
Somebody said, obviously, it would be much better if we were all in the same room, but we're going to make do with all being online. And I thought, no, no, it's the opposite that's the case. We've made things possible by moving online and you are bringing different people into the room by moving online. I don't think everything should be online. And digital exclusion and digital poverty are also massive issues. But for people to accept that this is part of how work should happen now does offer a new opportunity for access. So I think it's both those things, both... We're in this extraordinarily precarious and dangerous position, both socially and in our workplaces, but also something has opened up and something has been shown to be possible. Beautifully put and exceptionally articulate, which moves me nicely onto your poetry. So Harry Josephine is a stunning poet with a long history of individual poems and publications, and you've had pamphlets and art books going all the way back to Visa Wedding in 2013, up to Wages for Transition in 2019, which I read recently. It's absolutely electric. How did you get into poetry? Oh, wow. That is really going back. Back to student days, like 18, 19, I was organising open mic events. And at the time, I was mostly writing stories. And then I just started going through that to performance poetry events and getting excited by them. I've always been a performer, like, since I was tiny, since I was big enough to be on a stage I loved being on a stage I really like being on a stage I've always liked words as well and so I started coming up through performance poetry slam poetry and spoken word and that was because it was this marriage of writing and performance it was how do words exist like in this vibrant thing and I liked the chaos of it I liked the kind of political atmosphere of it so that happened in like my late teens early 20s but then over the last decade and a half oh no decade and a half (laughs) I've, I've moved more towards being interested in what poetry can do in books on the page I got interested in visual poetry I got interested in like the shape of text on the page so I write a bit more for books now but that performance background still kind of comes through in projects like Drone and I'm still very interested in how can poetry connect to live audiences for me I don't really do slam anymore But I am interested in like long form poetry for live audiences because poetry like has this hugely long history as an oral medium, as a performance medium. And it's just part of human life. And that pleases me. And I'd like to keep exploring that. I really advise our listeners to go and look up on iPlayer, the big Scottish book club on the BBC, where you can see Harry Josephine do the most incredible reading and be a bit of a dazzling, charismatic guest on this show. So if you want a sample of that poetry, that's the place to go. And a very, like, if I dare say, a very sexy poem, like very, oh, visceral, I felt. It's a little, it's a little bit sexy. It's a little, a little bit, bit sexy. Yeah. I, I really wasn't <laughs> sure what to do. Like, I mean, that poem fitted the theme of the show very well. The full title is Poem in Which All the Nouns, Verbs and Adjectives Have Been Replaced by Entries from the Wikipedia page List of Fantasy Worlds. Um, it's, it's published online in, in the journal Poems in Which, if you want to see it. But that title describes the poem. It's essentially a love poem or a sex poem, but I've swapped out all the all the words for the names of fantasy places. It's a technique I nicked from Edwin Morgan, actually. If I'd had a chance to chat on the show, I would have explained it. But Edwin Morgan has a poem called... Oh, uh, Codonalia? Some, something like that. It's, a, it's, a, it's an anagram of Caledonia. Yeah. Where uh, he takes Scottish place names and makes a poem out of it. So that's, that's where that idea came from. And what a great link to like the queer history of words in Scotland. That's so exciting. Yeah, Edwin Morgan is a, a really important inspiration for me, both in that kind of playful work, 
his interest in being both a populist poet and an experimental poet at the same time, that connection really matters to me. And then, of course, yeah, of course, his history in, in LGBT, queer, whatever work is, is really important. And having somebody of that national status is, is really important to us. You cover so many creative forms. This might be too big a question, but I was wondering how your creative process looks. Where do you start when you begin a thing? The reason that I work in different forms is because my creative process, I think, starts from a spark rather than from a genre. It starts from, oh, here is an interesting thing in the world. I'd like to talk about this in the world. What is the right form for that? So I'll have a thought like, it would be interesting to explore this feeling of wanting to destroy a palace. Or <laughs> I think I feel a little bit like a drone. <laughs> and that came from reading a magazine about drones. And I was like, oh, wouldn't it be interesting to... I, what I was doing was writing angsty autobiographical poetry and it was really awful. And then I was like, what if I wrote angsty autobiographical poetry as a drone? <laughs> and that was much more interesting. So it's, it's having an idea that I want to explore and then looking for the right form for it. And whether that idea is a sound or an image or a political idea. And I think the reason I do a lot of different forms is also just that I like art. I like going to art galleries. I like going to the theatre. I like reading books. And if you really like something, then you kind of want to do it a bit as well. I have to have a bit of a rule now with myself where I'm like, you can't pick up another art form because and I'm getting more I'm getting more interested in like really doing one thing for a long period of time. Because you can make better work if you really stick at something. You're, as we said at the start, a self-described Luther, and you're in the Festival City without a festival this year. What has that been like? How has it shifted the city? Well, Leith never really has that much of a festival. I mean, it's tried to creep down to us in a few different ways, but this is one of the reasons I like Leith, is it feels like a world apart. It feels like if you're in Leith, you can more or less choose how much you engage with the festival. It's not totally saturating your life. It's no secret that I have a bit of antipathy towards Edinburgh as a festival city. But if we were to move away from being so saturated with festival land, I would not want it to happen the way it's happened. That the way it's happened is a disaster. Like it is an economic disaster. It has cut people's livelihoods in all sorts of different ways, not just in the arts, but also in everything in Edinburgh that depends on the arts. Like this kind of catastrophe is not how you would want the festivalization of Edinburgh to change. And these circumstances are not good circumstances to breathe and reflect. One would hope that like with this huge thing removed, it would be a chance for a bit of a reckoning with what's good about being a festival city and also what's awful about it. Um, and to bring back the festivals in a way that nourishes the city and nourishes a year-round creative scene in a more sustainable way. One would hope that, whether that happens next year or the year after, I don't know. And the problem is that we're all in such crisis mode and we're all having to respond to emergencies all the time that there isn't that much space for reconsideration. And it does take proper space and proper reflection, but we're all dealing with an emergency. We're all trying to keep each other alive and keep each other in work. So I don't know whether that's going to happen. Which leads me very neatly onto a final question, which ties into that. If the pandemic is a portal, what would be your vision of the other side of that portal? Oh, it's a pretty brutal portal, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I want to be really clear that it's a horrific disaster and not something to celebrate. And it's not that like it's teaching us good things. No. It's not teaching us anything. It's making things harder. Yeah. It does force 
reassessment of the conditions that we're in. I think what it does do is lay absolutely bare for people who hadn't already realised that we're in a system that depends on social murder. Like, it's very, very, very clear that the way things are set up is not for the majority of people. And that anyone who is in any way marginal is considered disposable, whether it's considered disposable by a successful artist with a secure career or whether it's considered disposable by a government that sacrifices anyone with a health vulnerability to the supposed workings of the economy, essentially. Like, it's shown us who's disposable. So so we now know, and I say we, some of us already knew that, more people are more aware of their own vulnerability and their own susceptibility to social murder by a system that doesn't work for them. Plenty of us already knew that. So what's on the other side of it? I hope that the structures of organisation and the structures of mutual aid that people have built to survive this thing and to resist this thing, to resist the political aspects of this thing. And let's not remember that as well as a time of extraordinary social murder, this is a time of extraordinarily black-led uprising across the world, centred in the US, but across the world. And it's a time in which possibilities of protest and possibilities of change have been shown and have been built with organisational structures that can continue beyond the pandemic. So I don't know what comes after, but we're building the things that can create a different world on the other side of this. We can probably wrap up there because that was so unbelievably well put and visionary. (laughs) So we should probably leave on visionary. Thank you so much, Harry Josephine. That was absolutely brilliant. It's a real pleasure. Thanks for the conversation. Thanks for listening to my conversation with the brilliant Harry Josephine Giles. Check out our episode notes for links to their work, as well as information on their happening. Our next series of interviews will come out next year. We'll be bringing you even more in-depth conversations with the thinkers, makers and citizens that are forming the future. Make sure to subscribe so that you don't miss out. The music for this podcast was composed by Patricia Panther with sound design by Richard Bell and I've been your host, Debbie Hannon. Please do check out traverse.co.uk to see our upcoming work in Trav3, our online venue. The Traverse is funded by Creative Scotland and the City of Edinburgh Council with additional support from the Scottish Government Performing Arts Venues Relief Fund. Traverse Theatre Scotland Limited is a registered charity, number SC002368.